Um, noticing today just how many visitors we have, which is a great joy. Um, so I want to preface the sermon by saying that we are working our way through the book of Romans uh, as a church. We started back in the fall and we are going uh, step by step, chapter by chapter through the book of Romans. Um, if I'd known we would have so many visitors today, I would not have picked Romans chapter 13 to preach. Uh, telling you to submit to governing authorities would not be the first message I would want to bring. It would be something about love or forgiveness or the grace of the gospel. But that is the message I have been given today by the next step in our book of Romans. And we're going to trust God's authority um, and his sovereignty that that's a good thing. Uh, it might be a message that, that uh, you guys need to hear today. So um, I hope so. Let's pray as we begin. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all your word, that it is spoken for our learning, for our benefit, that we might know you and become more like you. We pray for this part of your word this morning, this difficult part, that we would um, work to understand it, that we would love you through it, that we would learn it, and by obeying it, be made more like you. Please give us understanding this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. In October 1985, a man called Michael Cassidy walked into the office of the president of South Africa, President P.W. Botha. And Michael Cassidy walked into the president's office with a great purpose because he was there to call for the end of apartheid in that country. October 1985. And apartheid, as you probably know, was a law of institutionalized racial segregation that was enforced in South Africa between 1948 and the early 1990s. And it was an evil law that led to racial discrimination, injustice, poverty, hatred, and violence. And Michael Cassidy walked into President Botha's office hoping to right a great wrong. And he had some confidence as he was going in that he was going to succeed because he knew that the president was a decent man, a Christian, who surely had enough moral conscience to recognize the evil of apartheid and enough courage to bring about change. So Cassidy walked in full of hope, but he was soon bitterly disappointed because the president began the meeting by picking up his Bible and opening it to Romans chapter 13. And he read aloud the very words that we just heard together. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. And President Botha closed his Bible and he put it down. And he told Michael Cassidy to stop resisting his rightful authority and get in line. End of story. And apartheid lived for another day. Now, thankfully, the laws of apartheid were overturned in South Africa less than a decade later, and that nation has done a remarkable job healing its wounds, although, of course, not without scars. But if things got better there in South Africa, in how many parts of the world are they still not better? So many other injustices remain in the nations of the world, institutionalized evil, and many more can be found in the pages of our history books, and time and time again, the strength of those political evils has been reinforced by weaponizing Romans chapter 13 and using it to beat down rightful opposition. So we might ask Paul, Paul, what have you done? Putting such words into the mouths of tyrants. And we might wonder, can Romans 13 still be a good thing for Christians to believe and to teach? 
where Paul says, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. Now, if you've followed Christian news or commentary over the past year, you've probably heard quite a lot of discussion of Romans 13. It was pulled out after the murder of George Floyd last May and the protests and the riots that followed. It was pulled out to discuss the government's right to enforce mask wearing and church closures throughout the pandemic. And it was pulled out after our presidential election last fall and the storming of the Capitol on January 6th when the results of that election were disputed. Time and time again, we hear talk of this chapter of scripture. And so often it's by people who are misunderstanding and misapplying it. So do you know what Paul says in Romans 13? Would you know how to respond to President Botha? Because Paul himself has an answer to him. And we're going to look at it carefully together today. Please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 13. On the church Bibles, it's page 948, Romans chapter 13. So Paul begins the chapter with these amazing and astonishing words. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. And the reason he gives, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Can we feel the enormous weight of that statement? It is world-changing and probably quite alarming to us, because the more you think about it, the more shocking that gets. Think about it. Kim Jong-un, Fidel Castro, Saddam Hussein, Idi Amin, instituted by God? If it wasn't Paul saying this, we would be tempted to call it blasphemy, wouldn't we? So this morning, I want to think about how Paul would answer the three very big objections that quickly come to our minds when these verses are read. First, it's a problem that the way that people come to power seems to have nothing to do with God at all. Second, it's a problem that the world's governments obviously do evil all the time. And third, Christians already follow a perfect king. So why would we add an imperfect one? And those are all really good and strong objections, I think. But I also think Paul can answer them. So the first is the objection of origins. The way that people come to power seems to have nothing to do with God. When we look at the different nations of the world, there are really only three basic ways that people rise to political power. Either they inherit it from their parents, like Queen Elizabeth of England, or Kim Jong-un of North Korea, or Abdullah II of Jordan. They inherit their power from their parents. Or they're democratically elected, like Joe Biden, Vladimir Putin of Russia, or Mokwitsi Masisi of Botswana, lots of democratically elected leaders. Or the third way is that they seize it by military force, right? A coup. And this happens all the time in the world. So in the past 10 years, we've seen 43 coups or attempted coups around the world. That's about one every three months. And we now have governments established by military takeover in Sudan, in Thailand, in Yemen, and probably soon in Myanmar. So those are the three main ways that people rise to political power. They inherit it, they are elected to it, and they seize it, or they seize it by force. And we can argue over which one of those is the best. Winston Churchill famously said, democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the others that have been tried so far. 
But we should notice that none of those three ways look very much like government being instituted by God. They all look very much like it being put in place by men. But Paul insists here in verse 2 that if authority exists in the world, it can only come from God. In other words, it doesn't matter how the rulers get there, whether it's by birth or by election or by blood on the carpet. Once they get there, they become God's servants, like it or not. So look ahead to verse 4. Paul says of the emperor at the time, he is God's servant for your good. Again, in the same verse, for he is a servant of God. And again, in verse 6, for the authorities are ministers of God. And those are exactly the same two Greek words that Paul applies to himself when he says that he is a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ and a minister of the gospel. So Paul credits political leaders as being as much in the service of God as he is himself. It doesn't matter how or why they achieved power. And I think that's the only way we can interpret what Paul says in verse 1. He says, there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Paul then goes on to prove his point in verse 4 with the example of capital punishment. Because he says, if you do wrong, be afraid for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. God's wrath. We know about that because we read about it in Romans chapter 1. That was the subject uh, that Paul dealt with there, and he talked about the sin that leads to death. And so Paul says here that when a government executes a criminal, it does so in God's name and with God's authority. So we all know from scripture that a person is not allowed to kill another person. That is murder. But God is allowed to take a person's life in punishment for sin because he says the wages of sin is death. And he warned us from the beginning that the soul that sins shall die. And what Paul says here in verse 4 is that a government is allowed to take life because they act as an agent of God's wrath. They channel the very authority of God. Striking, right? It proves Paul's point that they are God's servants, and it's the only possible justification for capital punishment. Now, I'm not saying here that governments should execute criminals. There are lots of other arguments against the practice that we could talk about, but I do believe from Scripture that they have the essential authority to do so. For example, it's fascinating that when Jesus stands trial in front of Pontius Pilate, he says exactly the same thing as Paul says here. Irma just read it for us in John's Gospel. Pilate said to Jesus, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? At which point, think how Jesus could have responded. He could have snorted. He could have laughed. He could have rebuked the very idea that this bloodthirsty, Serping Roman had any legitimate authority in his life and over his life. But Jesus did not say any of those things. Instead, his response to Pilate was, you would have no authority at all unless it had been given you from above. Wow. Wow, did you hear that? Did you hear that? The Son of God just told the Roman governor that God in heaven gave him authority not only to try his case, but even to take his life. And surely if that's true of Pontius Pilate, it must be true of any political leader, 
no matter how they got there. So when it comes to this passage, the point is that we cannot pick and choose, right? So the things that Paul says here about governments either apply to all governments or none of them. We cannot distinguish between good or bad um, because of what he says about the authority of God. So it's not cool to pull Romans 13 off the shelf when we want to defend a leader we like and agree with and then quietly put it back on the shelf again when we want to disobey a leader that we disagree with. So after Barack Obama was elected president, there were bumper stickers around town that said, not my president. Remember seeing those? And they came out all over again after Donald Trump was elected. They were just on different cars. Um, but Romans 13 shows us that this bumper sticker is not just politically false, it's also theologically false. Because it's not just a rejection of the man, but also of God himself who stands behind the man. So I don't want to see any kind of nonsense like that on your cards. Uh, the first objection to what Paul says in Romans 13 is, how can government leaders be instituted by God when they rise to power in all kinds of messy ways? And the answer is, however they got there, God enlists them as his own servants and invests them with his own authority. And God is powerful enough to use them in his service. But that quickly leads us to the second objection, which is that governments often abuse God's authority and do evil. What happens then? Well, it's obviously not supposed to be this way. Paul in verse 3 gives a basic framework for what governments are supposed to do. He says, in an ideal world, rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. That's the model. Governments are supposed to serve God and promote the public good. We've got to say that some of them do that fairly well. And also that pretty much all the world's governments are better than no government at all. But Paul wasn't naive when he wrote verse 3. He knew that there are bad eggs in government. He knew about Pontius Pilate. He knew about Herod. He probably wrote these words while Nero was the emperor. But Paul's language of being God's servant is a double-edged sword. Because if on the one hand, it comes with greatly increased authority, even the authority to end life, then on the other hand, it must come with greatly increased accountability. Because all God's servants will answer to God for the way they have served him. And do you think that God will be more lenient on people because they were his own servants? No. Quite the reverse. Certainly, he will be stricter. Listen to Jesus. He said, the servant who knew his master's will but did not do it will be beaten with many blows. James wrote to the church, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And Peter wrote, it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. So whether they like it or not, the political rulers of every nation have been enlisted into the service of God. And that is the only source of their authority, for apart from God there is no authority. But since they are channels of God's own power into the world, what do you think will happen to them when they abuse that power and use it to do evil? I would very much like to have been in Michael Cassidy's shoes to put that question to President Botham. Let me worry about how well I'm submitting to you. You should be worrying about how well you are stewarding the life and death authority of God. 
So in the new Michael Bay movie, Six Underground, the bad guy is a tyrant president who murders his own people. The vigilantes in the movie dismantle his power network, and then they end up dropping the president himself, alone and vulnerable, out of a helicopter into a midst of a camp of the poorest and most persecuted of his own people. And those people rise up, and they chase him down, and they show him just how much they love him with their fists and their feet. It's not a very holy moment, but it is quite satisfying. To watch the tyrant fall into the hands of the very people he'd made to hate him. Now, friends, nothing that those poor and persecuted people could do to their tyrant in that situation is worse than what God will do to him. As angry as those people might be, God is much angrier. So have no fear that justice will be done and be seen to be done in the end. Don't forget Paul's words in the previous chapter, in Romans 12, verse 19. He said, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. We trust God to do it right, better even than we could. And that is, in fact, the only doctrine that allows us to be peaceful, loving, forgiving, and gracious people the understanding that God will judge and will do it properly. But is that it? Just leave evil rulers to get on with it and wait for them to get their comeuppance in the end? No. That's the story. There is also a place for political resistance, and sometimes it becomes morally necessary. But we need to do it right. We need to do it in the humble fear of verse 2 where Paul says, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. We need to ask ourselves, am I ready for the judgment? Because maybe we are. Maybe we're happy to be judged, but we'd better be damn sure we're in the right. We've got to realize the seriousness of going up against God's appointed servants, and remember that they carry enormous weight of responsibility and almost certainly know more than we know. And so we approach them with the humility and the respect due their office. But all that said, resistance might be the morally right choice. So the prophet Nathan will be judged by God for confronting King David, the Lord's anointed, after his adultery with Bathsheba. But God will surely approve of the prophet Nathan. The apostles James and John will be judged by God for resisting the Sanhedrin's command that they stop preaching the gospel. But God will approve of James and John. Michael Cassidy is going to be judged by God for resisting apartheid in South Africa. But God will approve of Michael Cassidy. Dr. King will be judged by God for resisting the American government's laws on black voting rights. But God will approve of Dr. King. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer will be judged by God for resisting Adolf Hitler and even planning to assassinate him. But God will approve of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So if you plan to resist your government, make sure you ask yourself, can I handle the judgment? Is my cause righteous? Are my methods righteous? Am I sure that God will approve of what I do? For it is a serious thing. And just before we leave the subject of governments who do evil, I should briefly mention one last part of the problem, which is the case 
of breaking that happens within the government structure itself. So the case of the country makes a law, a good law, and someone within the enforcement hierarchy breaks it. Someone like a police officer or a judge or a senator or even the president himself. What should the country do about that? And we have a great problem with this situation in our country right now because the way that we punish crime within the government hierarchy is far too lenient. We have developed a situation where the more power you system, the less likely you are to be brought to justice for your crimes. So the poor person on the street who buys drugs or steals money goes to jail for decades. The police officer who does the same thing might lose his job and might suffer a light jail sentence. A senator who does the same thing has an even smaller consequence. And if a president does it, you know he's just going to get pardoned. But this is a travesty of justice, and it's totally upside down. Because since God's own authority is channeled from the top down, it becomes a much more serious offense when our higher level officials break the law, not less. And our justice system ought to reflect that. A high-ranking official who breaks the law should be punished more severely than an ordinary citizen and not less. So just this week, the police officer Derek Chauvin was sentenced for the murder of George Floyd last year. And he was sentenced to 22 years and six months in jail. And the judge told him the sentence was based on your abuse of a position of trust and authority and also the particular cruelty shown. And the verdict is an important step in the right direction, not only because it communicates that George Floyd's life mattered, but also because it communicates that the trust and authority of the police matters. We do no one any favors when we cover up evil or excuse it or turn a blind eye. We need to treat it with appropriate seriousness, and that is necessary for all of our healing and wholeness. This time, that verdict against Derek Chauvin came after months of protests and almost daily media coverage. But it needs to become the norm rather than the exception. So, the first objection to Paul's message in Romans 13 is that governments come to power in all kinds of messy ways, but Paul answers that they are all nonetheless enlisted by God as his own servants. Second, the uh, criticism comes that the world's governments obviously do evil, and Paul responds to that by saying, as God's servants, they will answer to God for abusing his power. In the meantime, we continue to obey them for God's sake as far as we can, and we may resist when we see them doing wrong if we're ready to face God's judgment for doing so. Now, the third objection is that Christians already follow a perfect king, so why would we add an imperfect one? So I've spent a good bit of time today looking outside, but now we're going to examine ourselves. We are the subjects of King Jesus, who is a good and perfect king, and he told Pontius Pilate that his kingdom is not of this world, and as a result of becoming his disciples, we have transferred our citizenship. Paul wrote to the Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven. Now, that being the case, we might ask, what have we to do with the rulers and authorities of this world, since we now answer to a much higher law? And I think for a lot of Christians, this is why Paul's instructions about submitting to governing authorities are hard to understand. So listen, for example to Paul's instructions to the Ephesians and compare it with the laws of our own government. Paul wrote, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something 
and that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. That is the picture of Christian living. And can any standard set by any government in the world compare with that standard? So if we follow that, what can any other law have to say to us? Some Christians use this kind of reasoning to turn their backs on human governments and basically have nothing at all to do with them. But that is not Paul's perspective in Romans 13. Part of what it means to belong to Jesus' kingdom includes how we behave as citizens here. So Paul began chapter 12 of Romans with the instruction, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So 12 begins the section of what we do because of what God has done for us in Jesus, the glorious gospel of salvation. So here in chapter 13, we're still on that same subject, how we worship And Paul says that our worship includes our attitude toward and our obedience to our government for God's sake, recognizing God's authority behind it. So when you drive on the I-10 and you obey the speed limit, do you consider that an act of worship to God? And when you refrain from drinking alcohol before age 21, do you consider that an act of worship to God? And when you stop to pull a permit for your project, even though it's going to slow down construction, do you consider that an act of worship to God? Because you should, because it is. And actually, as a form of worship to God, it's one of the easiest. (laughs) Because Jesus said, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And that is very, very hard. The government says, don't put these dangerous chemicals in your body and then climb behind the wheel of a car. And relatively speaking, that's easy. So we should be thankful for the authority of our government. Governments are great. They make laws that protect people. They uphold those laws with a decent and reasonable series of consequences. They provide undisciplined people like us with an easy way to learn obedience. And we find out here an easy way to worship God. So no wonder Paul says they are God's servants for our good. I would challenge you that if you have a hard time obeying your government, what hope do you have of obeying your God? If we were to try to create a definition of what obedience is, then it would necessarily have to include the idea of disagreement. Because as long as I agree with what my authority tells me to do, then I am not obeying anything. I'm just doing what I would have chosen to do anyway. So obedience only begins at the point of disagreement. And you and God are going to disagree about a lot of things. There are going to be moments where he wants one thing and you want very much another. And you will choose his way out of obedience because he's God. And that doesn't just happen naturally. That is hard. That is really, really hard. And it takes a ton of practice. So having the right attitude toward our civil authorities is that we thank God for them and we submit ourselves to them, practicing the kind of obedience 
that God is looking for. We are grateful that they ask small things of us, like taxes and votes and jury duty, and they provide easy, low-weight training for the real obedience that God is sure to ask of us later. So for this reason, it really doesn't matter whether or not our government is right. The things it asks us to do might not make much sense in our context, or they might even be worse than a plan that we could make for ourselves. But that really doesn't matter. Friends, God isn't impressed if we are smarter than our authorities, if we have better ideas of better ways of doing things. It doesn't impress God at all. He'd much rather we submitted ourselves and learned a more valuable lesson of obedience. And if our authorities lead us the wrong way, even if they lead us into danger, then the Bible says God has us covered. The Bible is just full of stories of how God has protected his people when they faithfully submitted to bad leadership for his sake. Governments aren't always good, but they're usually good for us. So if the FBI ever had cause to investigate one of us, may they find in our record such scrupulous attention to the law that it even surprises the investigators. Because obedience to our governing authorities is a part of our discipleship. It's a part of our worship. It's part of what God asks of us in response to what he has done for us in Jesus. So let's make it a part of our commitment to him. Amen.